saying and what he was trying to communicate and how, uh, you know, James in a lot of ways is kind of the, um, it's the Proverbs of the New Testament. He, he just really lays some very foundational things and he's very, very to the point specific about, you know, certain Christian behaviors that we should have and, and, and lifestyles that we should live. And, and so we're looking at here in, in James chapter 5, we're going to start uh, in verse 1. And uh, it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your, rich, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up yourself treasure. Behold, uh, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter, and you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. Now, these are not the words that you read uh, to just feel our warm and fuzzy inside, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, at the very beginning, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries have come upon you. Yes, Lord, I receive. Nobody's doing that, you know, you're not going to get up and holler me down like, bless the Lord, you know, God, I mean, you're not going to do any of that kind of stuff when we're reading passages like this where James and it kind of seems as we've kind of gone along this in, a, in the past couple of months talking and looking at James. Man, James, he just doesn't pull any punches, man. I mean, he's just like, he is straight to the point. He's going to tell you how it is, and he doesn't really care what you think about it, you know. Um, and so, you know, here he is again, and he's talking about, uh, you know, these rich people in, in several different aspects. And when you look at these Six verses, you can see that James is addressing several issues as it pertains to our wealth and how we manage it. And, uh, and so he addresses several things. And in particular, when you look here, there's three different issues that he kind of uh, addresses in looking at this. And one of them is, is the issue of hoarding. We see him uh, dealing with the issue of defrauding. And then we see him dealing with the issue of self-indulgence. And so... We're looking here, this idea, and he's, he's taking right here this, this mindset. If you said, you'll weep and howl for your miseries which are come upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Um, and so he's kind of saying, like, you know, you, you know, you have stored up for yourself, taken all of your riches, and you've bought all of this stuff, and, and you, have, you have acquired all of these things for yourself, and you don't even realize that this wealth that you have put together has bought you all of this stuff, and while you have all of this stuff, all of this stuff is rotting as we speak. And James is reminding his readers that the rich will lose their wealth because all they purchased is of temporary value. And their riches cannot acquire for them things that are lasting and things that are eternal. I mean, it's, is it not true that when you think about the law of nature, think about the law of nature, things don't go from bad to good, right? 
If you think about, if you look in the natural world and you see the natural world the way it is, things don't go from really bad to really good. I'm not going to take a bunch of rotten wood and, and, and work really hard to put a fence together in my backyard and over the course of two years that wood's going to get better and stronger and look more new. It just doesn't work that way, all right? Which is really interesting because when you think about this, you know, just the arguments of evolutionary theory and some of those aspects when they talk about how that the world began with nothing and somehow over the course of millions of years it has improved and got better. And yet when you look at the natural world around us, you don't see anything improving and getting better. You see things going and getting worse. Worse. Uh, over the course of time, things die and then they rot and they get worse and worse and worse. And it's the same thing when you talk about our treasure and you talk about our money. And he's talking about gold and how you could store up gold. And even storing up gold eventually over time will rust and it will decay and it will get worse. And clothes that you have, you can store those things and keep them forever and put them you know, in a closet, but they will eventually get old and they will be, you know, eaten by moths and they will decay and they will grow old and they, they're not going to get better. And all of these things that we can amass and store for ourselves with our riches that we gain here on this earth, okay, will only purchase us th things that will only go from good to bad. I remember uh, when I lived in Florida, you know, uh, one of the one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to buy a fishing boat and uh, because I like to fish. And I still like to fish. I just don't ever get to fish anymore. Uh, thank you, children. <clears throat> All right. Uh, but I really enjoyed fishing back then. And, and I remember people were telling me, um, you know, before I bought my boat, they were like, hey, you know what, um, if you decide that, you know, you know, buying a boat is, is generally like, you know, it's just as good if you just kind of like didn't buy the boat and just decide to drive down the street and just throw money out the window. Because what happens is, especially in saltwater, saltwater fishing, the saltwater really, really corrodes stuff and, and works stuff. So I bought this boat. It was a really nice boat and everything worked fine on it. And it only, like it only seemed to get worse. There were always problems that I was having to deal with because things just got corroded and they would break and they would, they would tear down. And then I would have to go buy new stuff to replace the old stuff because the old stuff was getting, it was rusting and it was breaking and falling apart. And then the, the, the parts in the engine were breaking and falling apart. And the, the, the wiring, the electrical wiring throughout the boat that connected the bilge pump and all of these kinds of things would break and tear down and and which is the reason why, you know, we almost sunk the boat one time is because my bilge pump stopped working and I didn't realize it until I turned around the boat and we were um, full of water. It's not a good thing, by the way, when you turn around and the boat is full of water. Um, and and it, was, it was constant. I mean, we all have these, these same stories when you go you know, to the car lot and you buy a new car, that car is not going to get better over time. It's only going to get worse. Anything that you go and you purchase with your money is not going to get better over time. It's only going to get worse. And this is what James is really highlighting this, this particular issue, that with this issue of hoarding those for whom gold and silver are everything 
meant everything to them, that they're hoarding all of this and they're massing all of these riches together and they're putting all this stuff together, okay, that they will have nothing except for their sins when they stand before God at the judgment seat. They will have nothing because all of this stuff will be consumed by fire. All of will be, leaves us wanting. All of this stuff are things that just consume us more and more and more. And James seems to be saying that the very rotting of the wealth that the riches are hoarding will be evidence of their greed and their abuse of really what is God's gift in the end. The fact that we recognize as believers and as Christ followers, that God is the source of everything that we have. And if we take everything that God has given us and we use it to hoard our own stuff and to build our own empire and collectively gather more things for us, more pleasures and more self-indulgences, and we hoard all of these things for ourselves, James is saying that these things will become Okay, a sign of your greed. They will stand against you and they will show the greed that you have lived within your heart of desiring more and accumulating more and gathering more and more and more. James goes into the issue of defrauding when he says that the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you who cries out against you. In the case of the rich people being exposed by James and the sin of the fact that their sheer greed of amassing more and more uh, and in the process depriving other people around them and their sheer greed in their life of acquiring more and more wealth in the process of acquiring more and more wealth in their life, they decided to turn a blind eye to the people around them, especially the people that deserve, uh, that, that worked for them, or that they were their employee, employees or something. They did all of these things and they worked. The hands of these people worked for them. They acquired all of this wealth for themselves and didn't even give to people what they owed. And then he goes into the issue of self-indulgence. This idea that we take our wealth and focus all of its spending on our enjoying and pleasures in life and whatever that looks like where he says here, he says, you have lived in on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. This idea that our wealth is supposed to go for our own self-indulgence, this idea that the money that God has given us, that the treasure that God has given us, that the opportunity he's given us to make money and, and to, to work hard and, and, to, and to provide for our family and do all these things, can come to a place where we become so greedy in our life that we begin not only to hoard, okay, not only does it become tempting to then uh, to withhold from people who deserve it in our life that work hard for us or to help us get to the place we are, but we can also come to the place where we begin to thing that God has given us and we begin to spend it on only on all of our wanton pleasure in our luxurious living. I think that one of the things that maybe we should should consider here, and um, and I don't know if you thought about this, but I think sometimes when we can read a passage like this and we can read through it and and hear James talking about, you know, because the very first phrase there, right there, he says he says, "Come now, you rich." 
Okay, come now, you rich. Uh, talking about rich people. And so sometimes it's easy to read that passage of Scripture and think, well, he's talking to rich people, and I'm not rich, right? As a matter of fact, I would be willing to say, you know, uh, you know, who in here would actually consider themselves to be rich? Who in here would actually consider yourself to be rich? Do you know what it's, some of you are like, I am. You are? Good. I'm glad you are. Most of us sometimes, though, wouldn't really look at this, and we would really wouldn't look at our particular position and think that maybe we would consider ourselves to be rich. And maybe the reason why we don't really consider ourselves to be rich is because of the society that we live in, all right? Because of the fact that we live in such a prosperous society. But how do you know what it means to be rich? And how do you know what the threshold of richness is? Like, is there a threshold? Is there a mark? Is there a, a, like a statistic that could tell us what it means to be rich, like say if you make a certain amount of money in your life, that that somehow now is said that you are a rich person? Is there, is there something to describe to us? Because when James is writing this, sometimes we look at this and we kind of disassociate ourselves from what James is saying because we don't consider ourselves to be maybe like a multi-millionaire athlete, you know, or computer genius or, or, you know, financier or whatever it is. We don't consider ourselves as being somebody who has hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting around in a bank account in a retirement, or we don't make millions of dollars or whatever. And so, therefore, we consider those people to be the rich people, and we consider ourselves to be middle class or... Something like that. Did you know that according to the global rich list, the global rich list, see, you had to know that I was going to give you something. I wasn't just going to ask a question without answering it. All right? Did you know that according to the global rich list, if you make $32,400 a year, we're talking about you as an individual, or combined in your family. If you make $32,400 a year, okay, which is really not a lot in our society. It's really not. If you make $32,400 a year, you are in the top 1% of the richest people in the world. 99% of the world is poorer than you if you make $32,400. Now, that number probably doesn't even put you in the top 60% in America, but it puts you in the top 1% of the world. Kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. A little bit, when James is talking about you rich people, Maybe he's talking about us, the top 1% of the richest people in the world. And he really comes hard after them, after their hoarding. You know, the, the, I think I heard a statistic that said that something like uh, 50 years ago, there was no such thing as like um, storage sheds. 
you know, like 50 years ago, there, there, there were no businesses where like this, you could go pay $50 a month to store all of your stuff in. It didn't exist. Like 50 years, listen, 50 years, it didn't exist. Now, it's a multi-million, if not billion dollar business in America because we need more places to keep all of our stuff. Right? Ever feel like that in your house, you feel like you're busting out of the seams, you got so much stuff? You got so much stuff sitting around the house? Have you ever tried to move before? And you're like, where did all this stuff come from? Like in every crack and corner of the house, stuff just is falling out everywhere. And you're like, like something's got to happen here. But we have bigger houses today with more bedrooms and more closets and more attics. And we're still paying monthly to hold all of our stuff in another place that's not connected to our house. Well, maybe that's not all of us here. And I, I don't know, like, am I saying that that's wrong? I, I mean, the Bible doesn't necessarily say it's wrong, but Jesus is, I mean, Jesus, James here really is, is coming after this idea of, of, of using our riches to amass all of these things, to hold on to our things, and not really considering the fact that God has given us everything that we have. All of the, it's a gift from God. And because we have ignored the fact that God has given us a blessing for a reason, and that reason is not to hoard, it's not to defraud, and it's not for self-indulgence. And it's not to say that vacationing is wrong. It's not to say that doing fun stuff with that blessing that you have is wrong. But it is to say that how do we prioritize what it is that God has given us? How do we, how, how, if we were to lay out all the money that we make on a yearly basis and we were to lay it out, and, and, and maybe some of you do this because some of you may be super, super OCD about your finances and you look, man, that I, I spend this much money on this and I spend this much money on this, you know, how much, how much do we give back to the kingdom? Versus how much we spend on our own pleasures and our own self-indulgence and our own fun activities. And it's not, look, and, and look, only you will know what you feel like is right in your own heart about that. So this isn't a thing where, you know, Pastor Paul up here is trying to give you a guilt trip. But the, the fact of the matter is, okay, is that I, I'm also not going to ignore things that the Bible talks about that are important. I'm just not, and I will never. I will never apologize for it. And the fact of the matter, listen, Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer, than he did about uh, meditating on the Bible, than he did about fasting, than he did about any of those other. The only thing that Jesus talked more about than money was the kingdom of God. That's it. That's the only thing that he talked more about. It was just the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God meant and all of these kinds. Why? Because he knew it, was such, it would be such a significant issue in our life. Learning how to take the gifts that God has given us and using them in a way okay, that would advance the kingdom of God and at the same time providing for your family. Okay, and you know, enjoying the blessings and the riches that God has given 
there's certainly nothing wrong with that, but it's, you know, have we considered the Lord? Have we prayed about it? Do we, do we know that there's a healthy balance in our life when it comes to these issues? And have we even really given God a second thought about those kinds of things? And, and you know, it's not my words, but it's the words of James here that really comes hard after this, talking about how this would be a sign of our greed. Okay, that it will stand okay, as a testimony to our greed and condemn us on the day that we stand before the Lord because of our unwillingness to address these issues in our life. James uses these words right here. He says, you, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and let a life of wanton pleasure and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Um, he's, he's speaking some language here and it reflects, it reflects the truth that those who live without reference to God and for whom physical pleasures is the main thing in life, they are not any better than an animal that has no fear of God. We don't live any better than the animals who have no fear of God, in particular, those hogs that they fatten up in particular for the day of slaughter, that they feed them and they feed them and they feed them and they feed them and they want them to get fat and they want them to get big so they could slaughter them. And, and, and James, James here is using these words that we're no different than that animal who lives with no fear of God, that we just live for our own self-indulgence to, to, to do all this kind of stuff. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, uh, it, we, we see this, this issue that the Bible says here, uh, in particular, it says the big difference that w- with the animal who is fattened for the day of slaughter is that, that w- when the animal dies, that there's no end. But James is pointing out the fact that for, for us as humans, when the end comes, the Bible says in Hebrews 9.27 that we are destined to die once, and after that we're to face judgment. That we're all destined to die one moment, one time. We, it'll happen only once for us, and then once that, when that moment happens, we will stand before God, and we will begin to account for our life in the days of our life, and the decisions that we made with the talents that he's given us, with the treasure that he's given us, with the time that he's given us. We all have a certain limited amount, and we will all give an account for that when we stand before God on that day of judgment. We're not just animals who live with no fear of God, where we'll get an opportunity after opportunity to try this over and over and over again. We have one chance. We have one shot to get it right. And we see here that the Bible condemns the rich who store up wealth and who store up their wealth instead of using it to reach the lost, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to shelter the cold and homeless, to nurse the sick, to use it for spreading the gospel. In the New Testament alone, it gives many warnings to the dangers of letting money and things possess a person's heart. Jesus said, you can only serve one master. Only one. You can't serve two masters. And he knew the power that money would have when he stood before the rich young ruler and he, he addressed him. And this, this guy who had followed all the letters of the law, everything, he had done everything to the T that he was supposed to do. And, and Jesus said, well, sell all you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And it was the one thing that he was unwilling to do. 
The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke of treasures on earth, and he spoke of treasures in heaven, and he called upon us as followers to be careful which treasure they choose. What treasure do you choose? You storing up treasures on earth, or are you storing up treasures in heaven? What treasure is more important to you? And in Philippians chapter 3, and even in Matthew chapter 13, we see that the Bible describes to us that true wealth is counting all things lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus. That, that Paul and Jesus compare all things to be worthless comparing to knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. That all of it was worthless. That none of it was worth anything compared to that. And this is the reason why James is speaking with such harsh language when he's talking about these things. And the issue isn't money. It's how we use our money. And it's the temptation behind having lots of it. You know, money is, is, is really neutral. You know, I could pull out $20 today, and the $20 that I have is rather neutral. It it's really means nothing. But somebody could use that $20 to buy drugs, or they could use that $20 to buy a homeless person a meal. Money really takes upon the personality of the person who owns that money. Money in and of itself is not bad. And of course, the Bible is not saying that. But James goes on in chapter 5 and verse 7 through, uh, through 12. It says, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the, uh, the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. <clears throat> but behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, and we count those blessed who endured. You have, you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or of earth or of any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. <clears throat> um, so James here, you know, he kind of moves on like he kind of does as he's writing a lot of his stuff. He goes from one subject to another, and we're talking about that. He really hits hard on the money issue there at the beginning, and now he's kind of on this issue of patience. Um, you know, isn't patience a really hard thing for us to deal with, right? You ask God to give you patience, and then you get mad. You're like, be careful what you ask the Lord for, because I asked him for patience, and he put me behind all these slow people driving down the street. <laughs> I feel you, man. I feel you. I really do. Uh, it's, a, it's a struggle in my life is real, and, and the struggle is real around here. I don't know, like, I, I'm sure that Calera can't be the only little town around that has got traffic problems. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I heard a story one time of um, this mom who had two kids, and as the mom was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin, who was five, and Ryan, who was three, the boys began to argue which one would get pancakes first. Like, 
hey, I've been here before, right? I mean, if you have a couple of them, this is, what, this is how it goes down, right? The mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson because we're always, as parents, looking for opportunities for moral lessons. And my kids make fun of me all the time because they will say something and I will find a way to turn it into a Jesus lesson. They're like, Dad, I just said like three words to you and you got to talk to me for 30 minutes. Sorry, man, that's how I roll, man. That's just the way it's going to be. All right? So their mother saw the opportunity for a moral lesson, so she said, Now, boys, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, Let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. So Kevin turns to his younger brother, and he says, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> right? Uh, that's kind of the way it goes, isn't it? We, we generally have this, uh, we have this hard thing with patience sometimes, um, especially since we live in this instant society that we live in where we expect everything uh, in our lives to be handled in an instant. We just think things should, we should be able to snap and it just kind of, it just all happens whenever we want it to happen or in a way that we want it to happen. I mean, is it not true that our world around us and the society that we live in right now, we just don't have a whole lot of patience for anything anymore. We want it now and, and we want it to be fixed now. And, and this, this permeates in every area of our life. If there's something going on in our life that we don't like, we want to fix now. I want it to be fixed now. And if God was good and he cared about me and he loved me the way the Bible says that he loved me, he'd take care of all of my problems right now. And, uh, you know, that's just not the way it works from a, a kingdom perspective. As a matter of fact, one of the things that you can learn about the kingdom of God when you read the words of Jesus is that everything in the kingdom of God works on a delayed basis. Everything in the kingdom of God works on a delayed basis. The idea of faith is this idea that you have faith in something that you cannot see. That you believe that God has done something that he hasn't already done in the natural, but that you supernaturally able to wait in faith and confidence that God's word will come true in the end. But it's something that's out there. It's, faith is reaching out into the unseen realm of hope and pulling it into the realm of reality. It happen in an instant. Even sin in our life, the effects of sin in our life don't happen in a moment. They always happen on an issue of delayed basis. Very rarely do we ever get in trouble for doing the wrong thing the moment we do the wrong thing. Right? Isn't it true? Huh? That the person who embezzles money generally doesn't get caught the moment they embezzle money. It's usually over the course of time that they make the wrong decision, and it's a delayed basis. And then sometimes what happens is we don't even recognize the fact that some of the problems that we deal with in our life are the direct result of sin, but because the punishment comes so later down the road, we don't ever recognize, we don't ever connect the punishment with the sin. We don't. And, uh, and it happens all the time. Uh, you know, if, uh, wouldn't it be nice that if every time you did the wrong thing, God just was like, pop, right on top of the head. Like eventually you would get it and you would just stop. You know? The problem is, is that we get the pop on top of the head, but usually it's like a month later 
And I'm like, God, what was that for? Like, well, you know, we just don't, we don't connect them. All right, but everything in the kingdom of God works on a delayed basis. And this is the reason why the Bible talks about patience is so important in our life. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Bible says that, that we're supposed to, to be patient because patience develops perseverance, and perseverance must, must finish its work in us so we can be completely not liking anything. All right, but we don't like patience. None of us like patience. We see a problem in our life, we see a problem somewhere, and we want it to be fixed now. We see a problem in the church, we want somebody to do it now. We see a problem in the school where our kids go, you better fix that now. We see a problem in our job and our, with our bosses or something going on, we want to, you better fix that now. We want to fix it now. If it doesn't get fixed now, it doesn't get fixed when we want it, I'll go find something else. I'll go find somewhere else where they can fix it faster than you. What do we do? It's like, uh, this is how our faith is. Our faith is like water. It's the, it's, it's a, you're going to follow the path of least resistance. That's it. You're just going to, you're going to go the easiest route you could possibly go instead of dealing with the moment where God has placed you and the moment that God has placed you in. Okay, you decide, no, no, I'm going to bail out of this. I'm going to go find a different way to deal with it. We want our marriages and our relationships. We want them to be fixed now. To be fixed now, and this, this person in my life better be fixed now. They better change now. They don't change now, they don't change when I want them to change, I'm gonna go look for something else. I'm gonna go find something else to make me happy, or to satisfy my needs, or to give me what I want. And James here is talking to us about how patience is important in our life. Leonardo da Vinci, he said this one time, he said that patience serves as a protection against wrongs as clothes do against the cold. If you put on more clothes as the cold increases, it will have no power to hurt you. And so in like manner, you must grow in patience when you, meet, when you are met with great wrongs and they will be powerless to vex your mind. That's what patience does for us. It gives us these trials and these, uh, these, these troubles that we deal with in our life and these issues that we deal with, whether it's great wrongs or whether it's just things that are outside of our control, it puts us, patience gives us the power to be able to overcome these things in our mind so that we're all, we don't buy into anxiety and we don't buy into fear and we don't buy into to doubt and worry and all those things because we have perfected patience in our lives. James says here that we're supposed to strengthen our hearts. Rob, if you'll come. Says that we're supposed to strengthen our heart, strengthen your heart. You know, that word there, strengthen, uh, in the original Greek language, it means to turn resolutely in a specific direction. That's what it means. To turn resolutely in a specific direction. This is what it means to strengthen your hearts. Now, you know, I think it was a couple months ago, you know, we had this conversation about, um, you know, personal responsibility as it relates to the kingdom of God and God's promises in our life and, and how he speaks to us. <coughs> 
Here it is is again, and and most of the time we read over these things without even recognizing them. That James throws the onus back on us. He throws it back on us, the responsibility back on us. Something like, you know, God, make me patient, help me to overcome this. Now James says, look, you strengthen your heart. Okay? You turn and be resolutely about the fact that you need to be doing what God has told you to do. And if things don't work out the way that you think that they should work out, or they haven't been uh, fulfilling or being fulfilled by the plans that you think that they should be fulfilled, then you strengthen your heart in the process. You work at strengthening yourself. Don't sit around and whine and complain and wait for God to do something for you. You strengthen your heart. You put yourself in a position where you can grow and mature and be strengthened in everything that you do. You have that responsibility for yourself. It's not anybody else's responsibility. You have to strengthen your heart. You have to turn resolutely into that direction, into the direction that God has sent you, all right, into the place where God has placed you. And you turn resolutely and you stay there. You stay the course and you keep persevering even if you don't see the results that you want to see. You do what it is that God tells you to do. You see, the prophets became who they were because they were patient in the trials of life. They were patient. Um, I believe it's I believe it was Jeremiah that said that that uh, it, of course you read about Jeremiah the prophet and all the things that he prophesied one of the interesting facts that I read a couple, several years ago about him is that during his lifetime, he never saw one convert. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine being a prophet for the Lord and preaching the gospel and preaching the word of God all the time and declaring the word of God and having everybody not listen to you your entire life? How patient would you be in the midst of that, like, well, maybe God just don't want me to do this. You see, these men, and the reason why James brings it up, these men were known to be prophets and men of God because uh, they, they didn't always see the desired result that they wanted to see. They didn't always see the change that they wanted to see in their society, in their community, in the people that they spoke to. They... It, it, you know, sometimes it didn't happen. Then sometimes you had people like Jonah who showed up on the scene who finally, you know, who rebelled against God and God had to, had, God had to slap him over the head and, and, and put some sins back into him and he goes to Nineveh and, and he preaches the word of God for them to repent and the entire city repents. Just with one, one preaching moment, you, you have... And so you have prophets who spent their entire life preaching and never seeing any change. And you have prophets that spoke one time and it brought a whole nation to repentance. It doesn't mean that Jonah was better than Jeremiah. Of course, we don't see that distinction in the Bible anywhere. They were both faithful in what it is that God called them to do. And... uh, just required a little bit more patience on Jeremiah's part, you know? 
And sometimes God places us in a place where he wants us to, to be patient. Even Job, Job's brought up here by, by James. When he talks about considering Job and what the trials and afflictions that Job went through. Uh, can you imagine? All right, can you imagine going through what Job had to go through and everybody that was around Job telling him that, you know, he must ascend or his, his own wife telling him that he's supposed to, he needs to curse God and die. Just forget about it, Job. Come on, man. Job, look what God has done to you. Just curse God, man. Forget it. And Job stays patient. He, stay, he stays patient in the middle. It doesn't mean that he didn't have questions. It doesn't mean that he didn't struggle from time to time. But he never turned his back on God, and he stayed patient with the Lord. And the Bible says that over the course of time that God restored back, okay, three times what he had to start with. There's a, an author and pastor by the name of M.H. Lunt. He, he made this statement one time about patience. He said, God's best gifts come slowly. We could not use them if they did not. Many a man called of God to work in which he is pouring out his life is convinced that the Lord means to bring his efforts to a successful conclusion. Nevertheless, even such a confident worker grows discouraged at times and worries because results do not come as rapidly as he would desire. But growth and strength is waiting. Uh, in waiting are results often greater than the end so impatiently longed for. Paul had time to realize this as he laid in prison. Moses must have asked why many times during the delays in Midian and in the wilderness where he waited for 40 years. Jesus himself experienced the discipline of delay in his silent years 30 years before his public ministry began. God wants us to see results as we work for him, but his first concern is our growth. And that is why he often withholds success until we have learned patience. The Lord teaches us this needed lesson through the blessed discipline of delay. The blessed discipline of delay. Patience. Patience. Are we living with the patience that we should? Are we holding on to a promise or a hope, a future that we believe that God has for us and for whatever reason we haven't seen it? Maybe it's that at one point in your life God got you fired up to do something for him and you, you went all in for a couple months. And then we just weren't patient enough. We just weren't patient enough. You stand to your feet this morning.